It's been a while since we've opened our Bibles to the book of Acts. We've been going through the book of Acts for the past year. We're only on Acts 17, my goodness. I looked back, I took a look back and I realized we started our study of Acts in January of last year. Can you imagine? <laughs> Praise the Lord, wow. So we, we find ourselves in Acts 17, so we've still got, you know, seven more chapters to go, so, or not more, it's more than seven. We've got like, what, 29, chap, 28, right? It's Acts 28, we've got 11 more chapters. This is good. It's going to be very good. So we find ourselves in Acts 17, and Paul is ministering uh, in Athens. He's gone through Thessalonica, he's gone through Berea, and he heads to Athens. And uh, when we say Paul, we know that Paul is the one that ta- is talked about here, but throughout most of this journey, he's had some friends with him. He's had uh, Luke with him, he's had uh, Silas, and he's had Timothy. Uh, the Bible doesn't tell us clearly who's with him in Athens, uh, but we've got to believe those guys are, or at least one or two of them are with him. Uh, but something happens as he goes through Athens. It, it says, uh, well, actually 15 will answer your question about where Silas and Timothy are because it says, as they escorted Paul, they brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So he's still got Silas and Timothy coming to catch up with him. His compa- compatriots have left and he's standing by himself in Athens. So he can either stay at the Holiday Inn until his friends arrive or he can do something. And he goes and he examines what's going on in Athens. In verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Now, uh, the New American Standard says his, his spirit was provoked within him. When you look at this word, it's a word that often means to be provoked, not just provoked like I should do something, but often provoked to anger or indignation. It, you're, you're not happy, you're upset. Something is, ooh, I got to do something about that. You ever felt that way before? Got to do something about this. So he's provoked within his spirit. Something's, it, 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 the word comes from, from a term that which means to like poke sharply, like something is... He's poking at you, and he's examining their idols. Now, you've got to understand, Paul is, is a Jew of Jews, right? This guy is raised in a very good Jewish upbringing. He was educated by one of the best teachers in the Jewish law and the Jewish teachings. So this man grew up with one thing firmly entrenched in him. It's the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. One. One God has been the center and the foundation of who he is. So for him to walk in Athens and observe their idols, you think about it, if you've read the Ten Commandments, there's more than one that speaks to idolatry. In fact, you could make the argument that all of them in a way are talking about idolatry, but directly, you shall have no other God before me. You should not take his name in vain. There are several things which directly speak to him, speak to this particular issue, and he's walking through Athens. He's seeing idols, and they're provoking his spirit. Now, he could either get up there and just start lashing out, or he could do what he was sent to do, which is to preach the gospel. We know that the gospel brings light wherever you preach it. As we go through the book of Acts, and and, and especially here in Acts chapter 17, um, there's a lot that you could say about this section of Scripture, and quite frankly, you just kind of have to pick a route because we could spend a whole lot of time on this, and I just fear the Lord leading us to, to look at it in a way that you can not only learn something about their situation, but that God would speak to us through this about how we are ministering to the world around us. Um... To be honest, if we were preaching this scripture to a group of unbelievers, we would preach it from a completely different direction because it's got something for them as well. But today I want to speak to you as the church. I want to speak to you as sons and daughters. I want to speak to you as ministers of the gospel. As Paul went to Athens um, and sees these idols, he's provoked. Now here's his response. It says, so, so it's connected to the fact that he was provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. It wasn't that, it wasn't particularly that he just went to one museum and there were idols, or he went to one section and there were idols. He's provoked because all throughout this city, there's idols. Now, we may not live in pagan Greece, but we can walk in many cities in North America, including our own, and say this is a city full of idols. They just look different. They look different now. But he's provoked. He doesn't, this is not, this is not settling for him. And it says, 
He was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. And in the marketplace every day with those that happened to be present. So he did what he did in all these other places, which is that on the Sabbath day, he'd go to the synagogue. And at the synagogue, there would be Jews gathered, and there'd be what they called God-fearing Gentiles. These aren't the Gentiles that worship gods or some other god. These are the Gentiles that have come to join the Jews in worshiping Jehovah. These are the Gentiles that have become proselytes, that have have gathered, and maybe they don't get the full rights as some of the other Jews, but they gather on on the Sabbath, and they gather at the synagogue. And so every Sabbath day, he'd speak first to the Jews and to these Gentiles that had gathered. But then every other day, he's just out in the marketplace. This is kind of a picture of, of, of sometimes the way things are here. I mean, we may have Sunday where we're, we're preaching and ministering to believers, but we've got the rest of the week where people that have not sought you out, people didn't come. You know, the wonderful thing about Sunday and Wednesday nights is you guys came presumably to hear something. Or to worship God with other people. I, I don't often face a hostile crowd on a Sunday or Wednesday night. There's been a couple times where it felt that way, but, but not, it's rare. It's rare, very rare. And so it's nice to speak to people that want to hear something, but that can't be your only audience. Really, it can't. Or else we just live in a nice little bubble. The gospel's got to pierce the hardest of hearts. So the goal is not to just... Uh, you know, have enough door prizes that enough people come in the door. The, the goal is, is that we would be encouraged here and be equipped for the work of ministry and go out there and we would all, in the spirit of multiplication, all go out and share that gospel, all out and spread the news of Jesus and, and healing the sick, raising the dead, whatever it takes. So in this city, He's ministering on the Sabbath to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, but then he's got a lot of other time on his head. Now he's in Athens. Athens, it is a professional sport to sit around and talk about stuff. I mean, this is, this is, this is what you do. You sit around and you reason. I haven't changed that much, but especially back then. I mean, this was the age of philosophy. Uh, even though they were under the rule now of the Romans, it still had flourished. In fact, the Romans had adopted some of these things. And so Athens is, is bubbling with people that will sit around and reason and discuss and argue and, and, and discuss ideas, never really doing much with them, but spending a whole lot of time discussing things whole lot of time talking about things, whole lot of time opining about things, scratching their beards and, and, and making grand statements. So an argument was the, the, uh, not an argument like we would have where you know, two people argue and they fume off and they're, they're angry and they never want to speak to each other again. Well, I'm talking about the kind of argument where two people are loving it equally. Let's just stay here and, and, and please, my friend, come back tomorrow and we'll argue again. You know, this is something... So how does the gospel pierce in a place like that? Because we know the gospel is more than intellectual, isn't it? There's a lot of intellectual stuff to the gospel, but the gospel is bigger than you can understand. You see, if the gospel were a small thing, if God were a small God, I could speak to you in an intellectual way and your mind would begin to grasp it and understand it like any other science or any other study. But the gospel, and in fact, Jesus and God himself is much bigger than your brain. And so he can't be confined to just reason and logic. Reason and logic are wonderful things. But like I've said before, there's only so much logic that an ant sees when he, when he watches you walk around. He doesn't find much logic in the way you walk and the way you go about and do things. Because he is so small, it's very difficult for him to comprehend why you wouldn't just walk from that place to that place. Why you managed to get over here and then you get into that big metal thing. And why are you doing what you're doing? Quite frankly, the ant doesn't even care. His brain's much too small to comprehend this. Your dog maybe has a bit more of an ability to understand. But you ever have your dog look at you like, why, why are you doing this? Why do you keep pouring water on those things that you eat from? I don't get that. Like, why don't you just eat from it? It's got extra food. You could still be eating. Why are you doing this? There's a whole lot of things that you could, you, you could sit down in your living room and try to reason with your dog. You could try to say, well, this is why I do it. But, you know, you would be the stupid one in the room, not the dog. Because you're trying to reason with a dog. The reason that's crazy is the dog does not have the capacity to fully understand everything you are. We have to understand that as human beings, God has given us a brain and we should use it. But your brain is not as big as God. 
And if you could fully understand God with your mind, He'd be a very small God. So to fully understand the things of God, you must also receive things by the Spirit. In fact, you must first receive things by the Spirit. So when we preach the gospel, we're not just reasoning. There's power in what we preach. They were amazed at Jesus because they said, you know, when when Jesus was ministering, the Jews watched him and they said, he's ministering, he's teaching with authority, not like our scribes, not like our teachers. He's got something else going on. Why was that? It It was because he wasn't just reasoning. He wasn't just teaching on an intellectual level. The words he was saying were hitting them right in the heart. The words he was saying were causing evil spirits to leave. The words he was saying were causing people to be healed. The words he was saying was setting people free. And so you couldn't just say that it was teaching. It was changing things as he spoke. That's what happens when someone ministers by the Spirit of God. In fact, in the early parts of the book of Acts, it says that people's hearts were pierced when they heard the word. Now, you can attend a college lecture and be educated. You can even be challenged, but your hearts can't be pierced the same way they can be pierced by the Spirit of God. So while we speak in a reasonable manner, while we speak using intellectual terms at times, this is not an intellectual activity. This is primarily a spiritual activity. Because that's how God speaks to us. You got to use your brains. Don't check them at the door. You need them. But your minds have to be renewed by the washing of the water by the word. So he says, he's reasoning in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be present. So whether they wanted to be reasoned with or not, he's there. And he's reasoning with them. And it says in verse 18, as some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Now, you don't need to know a ton about these guys, but these are both very big philosophies at the time. They're both about 300 years old, so they, they're older than the stuff he's preaching. Epicureans believed that everything came, like everything that was and existed and all good things and all bad things, it all came on an atomic, on a, on a, on a material level. So there wasn't anything past this. So they would have really thought him talking about resurrection was weird, you know, that, that the highest form of good in life was to, be, to, to find pleasure, was, was to be satisfied. And you might think, well, that sounds like they'd be chasing, uh, chasing the, all the parties and doing just what they felt like. But the Epicureans actually believed that that uh, if you were chasing stuff all the time, you'd never really be happy. That the ha- best way to be happy was to live simply and just embrace life. And, and so that was their philosophy. It was, all there is to know is, is here. They might, in theory, say there were gods up there. But if there were gods up there, they're not really messing with us. So we need to just live our best life here because they don't care. The Stoics kind of, the Stoics didn't really think the gods interfered too much either, but the, the Stoics, uh, men like Seneca were, were contemporaries of Paul. Uh, the, the Stoics believed that, you know, there was, there, the gods were there, but, but really they believed in, in self-sufficiency. They believed in, believed in living a good moral life. But in both of these philosophies, there's just a lot of humanism. It's just you need to change yourself. You need to embrace this. You need to find this within yourself. Now, while those philosophies aren't around today in this form, you see this a lot. It's the same sort of human thought. We can be happy on our own. We can satisfy ourselves if we just think differently. We can meet our own needs. But I want to tell you, and you know this already, that there is something inside of you that God has placed which will never be satisfied without him. And you can try to fool yourself and you can try to fill it with all these things, but you have been created with a need for your creator. So these philosophies fell flat because they missed the most important part. So he reasoned with them and it says here he was conversing with them and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? The Greek word here is, is a compound word, which means seed speaker. And so that was a term that they used for somebody that would just like a bird. Have you ever seen a bird eating seeds? Just pick up this seed here, pick up this seed here, pick up this seed. It, it was somebody they, they used to talk about like, this guy doesn't have his, his, his argument together. He's just picking from different things. He's just picking from a lot of different things and, and throwing it all out there. He, he doesn't know what he's talking about. If they only knew this is the guy. <laughs> that has, has walked through, uh, he's walked through Judea and Asia Minor and Syria, and he's walked all the way, he, not just walked, but rode and, and, and 
sailed, but he's come all this way, and behind him are a trail of people that have been supernaturally healed. Behind him are people that have been delivered from demons. Behind him is a jail that had an earthquake just to get him out of there. And has a, has a uh, uh, you know, all of this that he's come through, they have no idea. They just think he's some guy who's picked from different philosophies and just spouting it off. What does this idle babbler wish to say? What does this seed speaker wish to say? And it says he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. You notice deities, deities meaning gods, is, is plural. It says because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So what this seems to imply is that he's preaching about Jesus and then he starts talking about the resurrection and they just think that's another God. There's a God named Jesus and there's a God named resurrection. These are strange deities. Now, you, don't, you might remember this, but Socrates himself was put to death in Athens because he was preaching strange gods. So some people are getting their feathers riled up. He's preaching strange gods. And they seem to be missing the point altogether. But in verse 19... They took him and brought him to the Oropagos, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what does these things mean, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. <laughs> this is what they did. Said all the Athenians and the strangers that would come, they'd spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Do you see that this, this is sort of flawed to begin with because they're not looking to Paul as speak to us the words of life. They want to hear something new. See what you got, big boy. He steps up. He stood in the midst of the Oropagos and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. This is the most diplomatic you can possibly be. You see, he was ticked off, and his spirit was greatly troubled, and he was provoked within himself because of all these gods and idols that they had. So here's, here's what he says to them. I observe that you're very religious in many aspects. You could take that two ways. They probably took it as a compliment. Oh, yes, we are. Verse 23. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. That's a powerful statement right there. What he's saying is he saw the, the statues to Zeus and Hermes. He saw the statues to all of these different gods. But he focuses on this one statue, and there was many of these around. Because the Athenians were so nervous that they might have missed a God. I don't want to take anybody off. Like, we've named as many as we can think of. We've even made up a few. But if we've missed anybody, we don't want him mad at us. Or her, her. So, there's a statue to an unknown God. In fact, there were several statues at the time which said, to the unknown gods. Let's just cover all our bases. Paul says, I saw a statue that said, to an unknown God. And then he says this, what you have worshipped, what you worship in ignorance. He doesn't say who you worship, but what you worship in ignorance. Now, to talk to philosophers like, the, the, like for instance, the Stoics, they believed that knowledge was the best thing you could have. Ignorance was your worst enemy. So for him to say you've worshipped in ignorance is kind of insulting. But then he says this, what you've worshipped in ignorance, I'm about to declare to you. I'm about to proclaim to you. This is a powerful thought. Now let's, I'll come back to it, but let's keep reading for a minute here. It says, what you've worshipped in ignorance, I now proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children." Being then the children of God, we ought not, not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. 
Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he may judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The gauntlet has been thrown down. It says, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some of them joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So one of them that joined is not just a stranger, is not just an outsider, but one of the inner group that, that hears these matters. He's, he's one of the big shots in this area. But I want you to see what he says to them several times because he made a bridge. When, when, when he's going to preach to these guys, he, he built a bridge, and that bridge was this. I mean, as mad as it made me to look at these idols, I found one thing that I can start from. It's an altar to an unknown God. He says, what you've worshipped in ignorance, I now proclaim to you. He makes that his bridge. We have to understand that as we speak to people today, you often will assume that, especially around Christmas time, everybody knows who Jesus is. Everybody knows God. We're a culture that's saturated with Christian symbolism. I mean, even scriptures are on our parliament building, so everybody knows. I want you to know that people have a form and shadow of God. They might even have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They they might have a, an idea, but they don't know Jesus. See, when you know Jesus, everything changes. Give him a break. You didn't know him either. What changed when you began to know him? Somebody might even know a little bit about Jesus, but to know him changes everything. See, I know a bit about the prime minister. I know something about the prime minister. I know a bit about the leaders of the parties, of our political parties in Canada, but I can't say I know them. I imagine some things would change if I knew them. Some things I thought about them, some things, our relationship would definitely change. But I don't know them, I know about them. There's a lot of people that claim to know about God or know about Jesus, but this is, this is where we come down to it, that, that he's saying, you've worshipped in ignorance, which means you didn't know any better. And while he builds a bridge, he doesn't compromise, does he? See, somebody might say, well, then it's okay. Hey, look, they've got a, they've got a statue, and you said that's a statue to, to Jesus or something. So, so cool, we'll just keep doing what we're doing. He says... I'm about to proclaim to you what you've been doing in ignorance. But you're not ignorant anymore once I tell you. And he says, God cannot dwell in a house built by human hands as though he needed anything. Now, some of these philosophers would have agreed with that because they thought, you know, surely the gods are self-sufficient. How silly is it that we think we got to build them a house? And then he says this, he goes... He goes, he, he comes back to that point again when he, when he moves down. He says, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of men. So what he's bringing out is the same point that comes out in Romans 1, that there is a creator and we are his created. And what we've done is we have created God in our image instead of what's, what the real truth is, is that he created us in his image. He says, you can't create God in an image you came up with. And like it or not, that's the culture. I've had a privilege most of my life, in fact, all my life, to be raised, um, you know, in the family I was raised in. My father, as you know, uh, came up first to Canada not moving to Lloydminster at first, but Frenchman Butte, Loon Lake. Um, and most of his ministry for the most of his life, I mean, he began to pastor this church in the 80s uh, alongside this ministry. But for, most of, for all of his life, uh, from 1972 on, he was ministering to the First Nations of Canada. And so this was a guy that, that spoke several dialects fluently, who taught, the, the uh, you know, uh, there were reserves that asked him to come and teach Cree on the reserve. Crazy. Ask a Munyao, ask a white guy to teach Cree. But he so loved the culture and loved the people that he, he knew the language. He could read and write syllabics fluently. So he was, that, that was, you know, really something that 
that I grew up with and I grew up loving. And so we grew up ministering on reserves and, and uh, I still pastor a church. As many of you know, we, pa- uh, we have a sister church in Loon Lake, Saskatchewan. Most of the church there is from the reserve. And so one of the things we face often is the, is the question, um, we worship the creator. Is this the same thing? We worship the creator. We do it our way. We have our way of talking to the creator. We have our way of, of worshiping him. Isn't this just as good? Well, the truth is, we all come from cultures who had their own way of reaching God. Right? My ancestors had some weird ways of reaching God. Mine, you know, had some very strange ceremonies and some very strange idols. And the gospel came to the British Isles and the British shores, and it came with flawed people, but it was preached and it prevailed. In every culture, there have been people looking for God. What did he say? He said that perhaps these nations, perhaps these cultures would grope for him. Why are they having to grope for God? Because they're blind. Without the light of the gospel, we were all blind. In fact, the only nation on the planet that had, a, had a, a clear representation of God, and even that was limited, was the Israelites. The rest of us are trying to find our way to God, and uh, quite frankly, we came up with some weird ways to get to him. Why? Because we said, this is how we should get to God. God didn't say, this is how you get to me. We said, this is how we get to God. So we punish ourselves, we torture, or we build a big statue, or, or we have weird little rituals, or, or we take some, some herbs or something weird to have as a hallucination where we'll find God. Or maybe, the, maybe you know, the, the good old Rastafarians over there say, we'll smoke some ganja. Well, well, you know, God gave us ganja. Hey, you know, bless Yah. We'll, we'll get there. You know, we all have our methods of getting to God, but they were blindly groping. The book of 1 Corinthians says, if by the wisdom of men they could have found God, they would have found him, but they didn't. The wisest of men could not find God. So you walk around these cultures. You walk around, for instance, you know, Lloydminster, or when we walk around the reserve, for instance, we say, do you know God? Do you know Jesus? So we say, oh, I know God. I pray to God all the time. But see, the trick with that is, When you hear that response, they're always talking about God, God, God. But the word which really divides is the name Jesus. Why? Because God can be whatever you want it to be. God can be that lamp. God can be that sun, right? We know God isn't that lamp. But when you say God, you can make that into anything. You can make it into anything. There's people, you know, maybe you were like this. Where God to you was just how you wanted him to be. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, I'd like to believe that heaven is like this. I'd like to believe I'd get into heaven because I do this and I'm that. Well, I don't know about you, but I, I, I recognize I could like to believe that the sun will rise at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. But the sun will not rise at 1 o'clock in the afternoon because I like to believe it. What you like to believe doesn't change what's real. <laughs> That's just the truth. I like to believe gravity's not going to show up tomorrow. That'll be fun. Why don't you like to believe that with me? We'll see if it happens. Does that change anything? No. See, God loved you enough, and he saw you looking for him. And he said, you're looking, but you're not finding. But I'm going to find you. And he sent Jesus to show himself to us. Jesus, the Bible says in Colossians, was the image of the invisible God. See, the problem with the invisible God is because you can't see him, you begin to paint a picture based on what you think. So that's why when Paul looked at all these Greek gods, you know what? They all kind of looked like them. Well, you say, well, we're made in the image of God. Don't you think we kind of look like God? Oh, yeah. Here's the difference. If you've ever read Greek or Roman mythology, you'll notice those gods are just as messed up as we are. Aren't they? Or worse. I mean, like the chief god, Zeus, has kids because he came down, disguised himself as an animal, had relations with a woman, and has got kids spread all over the place. And he may not even pay attention to them again. 
These are people that get so mad at each other that they create weird little tasks for this person to do for the rest of eternity because you ticked me off or you were prettier than I was. That's why, I mean, if you've ever read, if you've read the Iliad, the, the, the whole Trojan War, according to Homer, was because, really started because a goddess was ticked off that this girl was prettier than she was. Start a war. It's caused some trouble. Right? So, and all these, if you read the, in the stories of the battles, well, this God was on this guy's team, this God was on this guy's team, and they have really dumb reasons for being on the team at all. They're just very, why? Because they're created in our image, and we're messed up without God. So if we create a God, he's going to be like us, messed up and flawed. But we weren't created, he wasn't created in our image, we were created in his I want you to know that there's something wonderful about God saying, I've overlooked the times of ignorance. Do you see that? On Sunday, we talked about the great mercy of God. Do you see the mercy of God that he didn't judge these people based on something they didn't know? But he says to them, you didn't know any better. So I'm going to give you a pass. But today I'm going to proclaim to you what you've missed all these centuries. How beautiful that God had not turned his back on these people, but sent this Jew all the way to Athens to say, you've missed it all these years. Don't worry, I did too. But what you've worshipped in ignorance, I'm about to proclaim to you and you won't be ignorant anymore. See, ignorance means you didn't know. You might say, well, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> it's wonderful. Like, if you don't know, you're fine. Because, hey, look, he's overlooking the times of ignorance. Wouldn't the best thing just to be ignorant for the rest of my life? No. That's a bad move. That, that always ends up snapping you. It always ends up causing you trouble. Because the Bible says you shall know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Because the scripture t- teaches us that we've been in bondage all our lives. That Jesus came to set the captives free. And the captivity we were in bondage to, sometimes we didn't even know it because we were blind to it. So he comes and he preaches the gospel to them. And all the time we're, we're meeting people throughout life that say, I know God, yeah, I talk to God, but they don't know him. They got no clue. And here's the scripture, here's the beautiful part, here's the truth. Jesus showed us the Father. So if you want to know God, you know Jesus. Now, you can have your own view of who Jesus is. This, the, the famous author C.S. Lewis so famously said, he said, Jesus is either a madman, a liar, or exactly who he says he is. Why? Because he claimed to be the son of God. So all these people that say, well, I think that Jesus was a great teacher. I think if we follow his teachings, we'd have less wars and we'd get along. But I don't think he's the son of God. Why in the world would you listen to a guy who goes around saying he's the son of God? That guy's a lunatic if he's not the son of God. If old crazy Harvey starts walking down the street and goes, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah. P.S. I've got some tips for your life. You're not going to say, oh, I'm writing them down, Harvey. Because the dude thinks he's the Messiah. Kind of throw out everything else he says. It's wacky to believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ without believing in Jesus himself. It's stupid. You see, we're a group. You've got to come to the place where you say, do I believe he is who he says he is? Not only did his works, he, Jesus said this. He says, either believe in me because of what I say. But if you're so weak, you can't believe in me because of what I said. At least believe in the works. <laughs> oh, if it weren't enough what he did, he rose from the dead. You say... There have been people that have tried to prove the resurrection wrong. You see, the resurrection has caused trouble. Satan hates the thought of a resurrection. He would wish we all just didn't believe in that stuff. Just write it off as fairy tales. You see how nervous the resurrection makes these Greeks. That's when they back off. Twice, the one thing that they can't abide is the talk of resurrection. You can preach that Jesus was a good philosopher. You can preach that even he had a spark of the divine. They could buy that. But that he was risen from the dead? No. The resurrection 
is something that is so deep inside of us. Paul said, if there is no resurrection, we are to be pitied above all. There's no hope. People have tried to write off the resurrection. Was Jesus really risen from the dead? Was it a fake? You know, that theory doesn't hold a lot of water for many reasons. There was even a theory that maybe Jesus just swooned on the cross. He was almost dead, but he wasn't completely dead. And they took him down. He was like, well, he gets up. Ooh, what have you done, you know? Now, I want to ask you a question. If the disciples saw Jesus half, three-quarters dead, crawling into the midst, I'm alive. And they look at him, barely breathing, crawling in there, barely alive. Do you think they're going to say, truly, he's risen. Let's go give our lives for this guy. <laughs> or if they made it up, right? If they made up the resurrection. What if, what if the disciples just formed a tale and just said, so let's, let's say he rose from the dead and he appeared to all of us. You know when that, when that argument falls apart? When they're torturing you. Yeah. When they're beating you. When you're not getting anything from this. You know, the great, you know the thing about scam artists? They get something from their scam. You know what the disciples got for this? Beatings. They got killed. I mean, like, they, this just wasn't like, you know, hey, if you sign up and you get, like, five friends to sign up, then you get a commission. And then, like, this was not what happened. And no matter how much they were punished and no matter how much they suffered, they would did not deny. Peter says, you can try to kill us, but we can't deny what we've seen. We can't deny we saw him alive. And I would much rather face your sword than to face him because I saw him alive. So the guy's like, Paul, they've seen him. They know he's real. And so he, he goes, you know, look, look, what you've worshipped in ignorance, I'm about to declare to you. I'm going to proclaim it to you. Now, the reason we do this is not to prove ourselves right. It's not to prove ourselves superior, for we were just like them. In fact, some of us, in, in many ways, we still, we still go back into that doubt, or we still go back into these, these, these old ways of thinking. But the good news is that Jesus didn't want to leave you in ignorance. God didn't want to leave you in ignorance. He, he shows that God is the creator of us all, that there is one God, and he created us all. And that Jesus, being the image of the invisible God, showed us the Father, that he died and he rose again. He paints the picture beautifully. But still, he's rejected. Still, there are people that don't want to hear it. Still, there are people that uh, sneer at it. And there's some people that say, well, we'll hear more about this. Kind of makes me feel better that even the great Apostle Paul had people that sneered at him or that Jesus himself had people that walked away. Most of the people walked away. But there were some that did believe. And as he paints this picture, we see something that pops up over and over again in the scripture. God is revealing himself to men and women all over the planet. Now, I want you to see what he had said. He says, God, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. I want to read something to you that you probably, as soon as you got born again, memorized or, or you're at least very familiar with, and that's in Romans chapter 10. In Romans 10, it says in verse 11, For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Then he says this, and this is what grips me. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? You can't call on somebody you don't believe in. How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? See, that's the tough one, isn't it? You can condemn the world for not believing, but it's not always their fault. How can they believe if they've never heard? You have to stop thinking that cultural Christianity 
is the same as living Christianity. Now, I, know, I hope that sunk in because the reason you need to stop believing in it is you need to stop thinking that our Canadian culture being so filled with Christian symbols and Christian ideas has any idea who Jesus is. Because if you think, just because they went to church as a little kid, to some church that didn't even preach salvation, or just because they celebrated Christmas, or just because they were baptized in a church as a baby, that they have any clue who Jesus is. And many of you were were raised in, in that kind of idea. Many of you were raised, and you as a child knew church, but you didn't know Jesus. Our culture's got enough, enough religion out there that's like being inoculated, just enough to turn you off to it. We're not preaching religion, we're preaching Jesus. Not Jesus as an idea, not Jesus as a teacher, not Jesus as a philosophy, but Jesus as the living Savior who is alive and rules and reigns right now. We preach Jesus, we preach his cross, we preach his resurrection, we preach a living God who you can know and who will set you free. We're not preaching some idea. It's not a philosophy. And so we have to get over our idea, everybody knows Jesus. Because everybody knows about the general idea. But you spend enough time with people, you'll know this. People don't know him. They don't know him. And many of them have not honestly heard the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. They've heard bits and pieces They might even say, well, yeah, didn't Jesus die for our sins? But they got no clue what that means. And that's not their fault. Whose fault is it? Be ours, right? I'm not trying to pass fault to anybody, but I'm just saying, if they haven't heard, it's not the one who hasn't heard that's got the problem. It's the one that hasn't preached. Now, sure, there are some of them that have heard and turned their ears off. Jesus said there's those that have shut their ears, have shut their eyes. And in that case, yeah, sure, it's your fault. But thank God, we do serve a God of mercy. That though you may have shut your eyes and shut your ears 50 times, I will tell you again, and in the 51st time, something's going to break through to you. How will they call on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in whom they have not heard? And how, uh uh-oh, will they hear without a preacher? And you go, oh, good, you're a preacher. But according to the scriptures, you are too. See, our, our idea of preaching is a guy who has a microphone, gets to stand on a stage. But that's not the Bible idea of a preacher. Preacher just means proclaimer. And the gospel is not an argument to be argued, but a message to be proclaimed. If you could win somebody with an argument, you could lose them with an argument. Can you get saved by simple losing an argument? No, that, maybe that was part of your experience, but truth is the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. Without faith, you can't be saved. Losing an argument doesn't get you to heaven. Believing in Jesus Christ will save you. This is what it says here. How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Isn't that great? Isn't it great that we get to preach good news of good things? That's a lot better than bad news of bad things. However, they did not all heed the good news. So there are some that didn't listen. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And verse 18 says, but I say, surely they have never heard, have they? Indeed, they have. Their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. He's talking about the fact that the gospel was going to be preached to the Gentiles. He says, I'm I'm going to show myself. I'm going to make you jealous by proving myself amongst nations that don't even know who I am. He says... Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Now, how many of you would say that lines up with your experience to some degree? Even when you were seeking God, you didn't know what you were seeking. Here he says, 
Here's, here's the good news. He says, I will be found by those who didn't seek me. I became manifest. Manifest means he uncovered, he revealed himself. To, you, you couldn't see it before, but now it's manifest. Now, the Bible tells us all throughout the New Testament that he is made manifest through the preaching of the gospel. The glory of God is made manifest through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we preach, God reveals himself to people. Jesus shows himself to people when we share this. Look what it says. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now, in the next chapter, he says, God has not forsaken you. And he begins to preach to his Jewish brethren, encouraging them that now God is calling for all to come to repentance. But I want you to see what he said to the Gentiles, what he said about the Gentiles, that God was going to use people who had beautiful feet preaching beautiful news, good news of good things, just like Paul's doing in Athens, to even people that aren't looking for him, and they're going to find him. Remember he said that these nations were going to grope for God if maybe they'd find God, but now it says God is showing himself. I want to read you one more thing, which we read not long ago, so it should be fresh in your minds if you were here. But it's in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And I am, I find this very encouraging because when I read this, when I read this, I get assured that the glory of God and the truth of God is not up to me. You know, it's not about me being a better speaker than somebody else. It's not about you having a, a better argument. It's about God speaking to hearts. It's about God opening hearts. And we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says in verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. We're not walking in craftiness, or adulterating the word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, we are commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, I find this very encouraging in verse 2. Any message that's preached tricking people into something is not the gospel. It's not the message that God has preached. Manipulating, tricking, craftiness, it's not in our bag of tricks. We don't have a bag of tricks. You can't trick somebody into believing Shouldn't ever try. I had some friends that that used to be their method. Try to get somebody to pray a prayer who didn't even believe. You got to believe. A prayer without belief is nothing. It's nothing. A parrot can pray. A parrot can repeat words. But do they believe it? It's a difference, isn't it? And I believe in, I believe in leading people in a prayer. I, I, I believe that that's part of it, but that's by itself. You don't get saved by parroting words. You get saved by believing and confessing. And the confession is not confession because someone told you to say it. It's confessing because you do confess him and be Lord. So trickery doesn't work. I heard somebody say one time, well, well, this actually, Blaise Pascal said this. He's a very famous mathematician, brilliant guy and a lover of Jesus. And he said, you know, I'm sure he didn't intend for this argument to be used to try to, you know, make people pray a prayer. Because he said, he said, well, if I'm wrong, I lose nothing. If you're wrong, you're in trouble, right? Well, and that's true. But I've heard people use that, you know, trying to lead somebody to the Lord. So basically, pray a prayer with me. It's fire insurance. You'll be <laughs> if you're wrong, better to be covered, right? At least buy some insurance. I'm sorry. That's not faith. That's somebody just trying to get you off their back. But the gospel is so much better than this. And it's so good, oh friends. Jesus is so good that you don't have to trick anybody. You can't shine him up and make him better. You can't use some good PR and make the gospel better than it is. It's the best news there is. 
He is as good as it needs to be. So the gospel in its most powerful form is the gospel in its purest form. Preach Jesus. Preach the cross. Preach the resurrection. And I guarantee there's the power. He says the message of the power the cross is the power of God unto salvation. And I'm not ashamed. So this is the power. The power is not in winning an argument. The power is in proclaiming the gospel. Now here's what he says about that. The Athenians that Paul was preaching to were blind. They were ignorant. So Paul preached something to them that would open their eyes. What does he say here? He says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those that are perishing. In whose case the God, little g, the God of this world, that's Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If you stop there, you're depressed. Because he says there are people that don't believe, it's because their eyes are blind, they can't, see what, they can't see the gospel, they can't see Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. He says this, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness. You'll remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus, for God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness. And remember when he said, light shine, light was. When he said, light shine out of darkness, he's the one who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What happens when you're blind? What do you see? Nothing. If you were to describe what you saw, what would you say? It's dark. If your eyes are shut, you might not be terminally blind, you might not be medically blind, but you are for all intents and purposes blind. You're not blind because of a condition, but you're blind because you've shut your eyes. What, what's happening when you shut these eyelids? All the light that comes in is being blocked out. So you can't see anything because all you see is darkness. Here's the good news. Here's the cure for blindness, spiritual blindness. He says that God who said light be is the same God who said light be in our hearts. And he put his light in us. And he says that we, that light that is shone in our hearts, it gives the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let me break that down for you. He's saying when we preach Jesus, people's eyes are opened. Because when we preach Jesus, the light of the glory of God, everything that God is, all of his glory, all of his goodness is displayed in Jesus Christ. So when we preach Jesus, people who could never find God see God. People who have been blind all their lives see light for the first time. Do you know that the same God that called light out of darkness put light in your heart? And that light wasn't just for you. That light was to shine the glory of God in the face of Christ. When I look at what Paul said to the Athenians, Sometimes a little depressed that there's such a low response. But it often happens amongst those that have such intellectual pride. It's not that they're smarter, because none of us are as smart as we think we are. When compared to God, you're not that smart. But the problem is you think you're smart. When you think you're smart, it's hard to learn something, isn't it? The traditional church has gotten in trouble with that. Remember a guy named Galileo? Tries to claim, hey, I think that we're wrong about something. I think the earth, in fact, revolves around the sun, not the other way around. And it was the church that said, that's blasphemy. You can't say that. Well, did, at any point in time, did God say that the Sun revolves around the earth? No, the only scripture they could pull up was that Joshua told the sun to stand still in the sky. Well, if you were an Israelite and you, <laughs> you said, make the earth stand still, that would have made no sense. 
Joshua, not being a science major, was not, was not trying to describe the universe. He's just saying, hey, God, can you make the sun stay in the same place in the sky? God made that happen. Right? The book doesn't have to go into all the detail. How he made it happen, because the ancient Israelites would have been like, well, that's cool. I don't get what you just said. But here's what God did. He made the sun stand still in the sky. Well, whatever he did, he probably made the earth stand still. I don't know how he did it, but he did it. But the church got so proud in how they thought they understood things that they couldn't accept anything new. They, they, they get so high and mighty in their wisdom. This was the, 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 the old middle-aged church which had basically none of Jesus in it, just nothing but religion left over. And this is what happens. And this happens amongst religious people. It happens amongst non-religious people. But anytime you think you know it all, you learn nothing. So here's the truth. These Athenians think they know everything. They think they got, man, let's hear something new. But they don't want to hear something so new that it challenges everything they've believed. We know everything. We know enough. We know more than this seed speaker. We know more than this guy. He's a dilettante. He knows nothing. So they look at him and they sneer. And they sneered at the resurrection. And this is the crux of what we're coming down to, and we'll end with this thought. There are many people who can accept the teachings of Jesus to love your neighbor. There are many people who can accept the teachings of Jesus not to judge lest you be judged. But I'll tell you the point where you will find division is when you bring the supernatural into it and when you bring the resurrection into it. Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. He's not just a man. He's not just a teacher. But he was risen for you and for me. He was killed for you and for me. And he was risen for you and for me. You have to be okay with the thought that some of the things you say are going to challenge some long-held beliefs. But as long as you're humble about it and you recognize that he is the God who opens hearts and opens minds. He is the only one that can open eyes. You can be a great speaker, but being a great speaker can't do anything without the power of God. If you can trust him, there are going to be some things that you ref must refuse to be ashamed of. Refuse to be ashamed of Jesus. Refuse to be ashamed of his cross and be refuse to be ashamed of his resurrection. Refuse to be ashamed of the Holy Spirit. Refuse to be ashamed of miracles. Refuse to be ashamed of the very things which prove the gospel throughout history. Because if you get to the point where this is just a philosophy, you might as well sit down with those Athenians and just say, let me, let me hear something new. We're preaching something more than a philosophy. We're letting God himself reveal himself to people. What you've worshipped in ignorance, I now proclaim to you. Because since the beginning of time, men and women have tried to find God. But the gospel is about a God who came to find them. And that is a brilliant thing. Let's stand up and praise God for it. Lord, we thank you that you didn't leave us blind. You didn't leave us ignorant. You didn't leave us without a witness. Lord, we recognize that we, at some point in history, stopped worshiping the creator and we started worshiping the created things. We stopped viewing ourselves as those made in your image and we started viewing you as made in ours. But Lord, I thank you that you found us. Lord, that you opened our eyes. God, we take that with such gratitude and such humility because we know that our friends and our family, there are people that we love dearly who still don't know you. And it's our prayer that they would know you in the power of your resurrection, that they would know you, not just know about you. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be vessels that you can use that are not preaching ourselves, but preaching Christ Jesus. That we are not a stumbling block, but that if anybody's going to stumble over anything, they'll stumble over you. Lord, we ask that you would embolden us. Father, I recognize that we've got a group of people here that love you, that care for you, and love other people too. Sometimes we face those moments where we value our reputation or we value our space or we value 
our, our standing in society more than we value the souls of those that surround us. We ask that we would have the same compassion in the heart that you have. That we would love people like you love them. Lord, you would use us to shine light into dark places. That the glory of God would be seen in the face of Christ. And the face of Christ would be seen in us. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you very much. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. And we will see you hopefully on Saturday. If not, we'll see you on Sunday. God bless you.